Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Uh, Delano Squires is a research fellow in Heritage's, uh, Heritage, Heritage Foundation's Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family, where he writes a lot about the nuclear family and the benefits of fatherhood, among other subjects. Um, so welcome to High Noon. Uh, I've wanted to have you on here for a while. Uh, we, we've done some NatCon squad stuff together. Um, we, we've been mm -hmm. at various conferences together, but um, mm -hmm. I've always meant to get you on because you bring such an interesting perspective, I think, to this uh, question of family formation um, and of, of specifically the role of fatherhood, which I think you, you talk about um, really eloquently in a way that really compels people um, to listen to you. But I guess let's start there then. I mean, I guess this makes sense. So you're also your father, I believe, of four. Um, your right. your kids are homeschooled. Like, how, how did you, I, I um, heard on, on an, I think when we were chatting um, at one of these conferences, you said you grew up in New York. I think you went to mm -hmm. public school in New York. So like, how did you end up being sort of a conservative Christian father of four <laughs> homeschooler? That, that's, a, that's a great question. First of all, thank you for having me on. Um, I've always enjoyed our conversations at conferences on that con. So really looking forward to, to this conversation. Um, the, the Christian part sort of carried forward from my upbringing, you know, with, with my parents and growing up in church, um, didn't always act according to what I was taught, but oftentimes a man's deeds and creeds do not align. And sometimes it takes a little while for those two things to come into um, sort of harmony. But yeah, I grew up in New York City, um, parent to, to parents who immigrated to this country, my mom came in late 70s and my dad came after they got married. And um, so I, I grew up in a, in a fairly tight-knit community um, in an environment that really sort of typifies the, that adage that it takes a village to raise a child. So I sort of, I understand that on a very personal level, but that village didn't in involve any bureaucrats or elected officials. That village was extended family, you know, neighbors, uh, church family, so on and so forth. Um, and as you said, went to public schools in New York for all but two years. Um, I, I actually went to five schools over the course of my, you know, education, you know, K through 12 education, two elementary, two middle and one high school. And, um, you know, went off to college, did that, you know, was major in computer engineering, which a lot of people don't know, which is one of the reasons I write the way I do. Um, and sort of struggled to find full-time employment after I left college, um, ended up back in New York doing some temp work, you know, and then landed here in DC um, initially as a leasing consultant. So I was renting people apartments and then ended up working for local government for almost 15 years. So during that time, you know, I, I, I had views, you know, social, cultural, political views that were fairly consistent with where I am now. Um, but I didn't have a worldview. I didn't have a unifying worldview that held it all together. Um, and, and the way I would explain it to people is that before, and again, as someone who grew up in church, before I thought that I owned my own house, right? House being a metaphor for my life. So I own my house. It was built on a moral foundation that I created. So whatever I thought was right or wrong. And in that house was a number of rooms. So finances, relationships, um, politics, race, culture, and religion was one room in that house. 
And every Sunday, I, I would let Jesus out of that room so he could have the full run of the place for between 10 and 11.30. Um, and by, by 1 p.m., he had to go back in his room. And then I continued to be sort of the master of my domain. Um, but over the course of years and, and um, just growing spiritually, being under better teaching and, and just coming to certain realizations, I, I, I decided to tear down that house because that, that foundation was not secure at all. And, and, I, and I realized that now in retrospect. Um, and I decided or, or I, I allowed the, the, the reconstruction to be built on a biblical foundation where God owns the entire house, all of the rooms, um, and, and sort of that the, the fragrance that emanates from the scriptures can be, can be um, caught in any part of, of the house. So it's not just a Sunday thing, right? I'm not the type of person that says, ask me a question, and I say, and there's, I'll give you one answer on Sunday, and I'll give you a completely different answer on Tuesday afternoon. Um, so I, I've tried to have, you know, what I believe and the things that I say and how I live my life come into greater alignment. So with that, you know, um, my views on education, right, as you mentioned, we homeschool, um, stem from the Bible and, and particularly the command that fathers are to bring up their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So it's like education is when I think of education as a, as a parent's rights issue, that's not just rhetoric. Like I, like I, I, I really believe that. Um, and that's why my wife and I decided that we did not want a 24 year old pink and blue hair teach for America graduate who has no, no children of her own, um, owns no property, has no investment in, in our children to be shaping the morals and values of our kids um, 10 hours a day for the next 12 years so that by the time they go off to university, after one semester, they come back hating everything that we taught them. So, so yeah, so all of the things that I say about family, about marriage, about fatherhood, about education, about crime and punishment, uh, about life, about sex and sexuality, um, gender identity, and, and, and all of those things sort of spring from that the worldview, the new worldview um, that I'm that I'm trying to keep my house built on. Yeah, you know, um, one of the things that I think is uh, something that is is often lost, even sort of on the center right, um, is something that you're implying with what you're saying about education, which is that there is a moral instruction component to education. Um, there isn't really a way of separating out um, a sort of moral worldview. Uh, mm-hmm. or an ethical instruction from academics fully. Um, I know when when we grew up, we're like, I think we're both 90s babies, right? Like, I think people imagine that that was possible, but there was still at least, um, there was still very much a background worldview. It just wasn't as overtly political. Right. Now it's much more overtly political and obvious, I think, to people. But because you often, I often get pushback sometimes from people even on the right or in the center who say, well, I just want my kid to learn the three R's. You know, like, what would you say to that, that pushback? I just want them to learn how to read, write and do, do math, learn a little history, you know, um, I'll take care of the, their moral foundation or their moral formation at home. Yeah. I mean, I, to your point, I mean, when I went to school, let's just even say high school, I don't remember having teachers that were pressing their political opinions on me. 
Um, that wasn't part of the curriculum. And, and the way I, I sort of um, I, uh, articulate what it is that you said is that education is equal parts uh, scholarship and discipleship, right? So it's academic mastery and moral formation. Um, so that I, I hold those two things to, to be equal parts of the education experience. So I understand parents that say, I just, to your point, I want them to learn the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Um, that's probably how my parents were. And I think for the most part, that's what parents got when they send, sent their kids to school, certainly in the 90s and even into the early 2000s. Um, I'm not sure we can return to that point because to me, the genie's out, out of the bottle. And, and now what it is, it's a battle in the public square, which um, is both at the state house and in the schoolhouse. Um, so, I, I mean, m maybe getting back to the three R's is sort of that um, neutral sort of point of foe neutrality. Um, I don't I don't get the sense the left wants to go back there. Um, and, and I think part of what the right is doing is saying, look, if, if the schoolhouse is going to be more explicitly involved in moral instruction, right, for a number of reasons, then we prefer that instruction to look like the success sequence where kids are learning, e even in a descriptive manner, that if you finish high school, get a job, marry, and then have kids, your chance of being in poverty by your mid thirties is in the single digits. Um, the right may say, look, if, if we're gonna be in the moral formation business, let's teach that instead of teaching kids um, that men can have babies and it's possible for a man to lactate and breastfeed, right? Th those are two sort of opposite ends of, of the spectrum. Um, and, and maybe somewhere in the middle is, is getting back to that three R's, but something tells me we've sort of blown past that point. Yeah, that's very much what Ian Rowe um, and the schools that he ran and then now the new schools that he's running mm -hmm. uh, are teaching, which is the success sequence, the cardinal virtues. It's it's kind of a, but it is a strong, it's a secular worldview because it's a charter school, um, but mm -hmm. it's a strong, um, strong moral shaping worldview right mm -hmm. um I, I, I just i've never i've never bought into this idea that you can have this instruction totally divorced from moral found, foundation or formation because it, it's just it's also just not interesting right um <laughs> in, in in many cases the most interesting thing to learn is is about human beings and who we mm -hmm. are why what our rational rationalizations and motivations are you know what we are um are are we you know, just flesh and blood and, and, and bones. Um, are we, is there some kind of spiritual or, or soul dimension to us? Is the mind the same as the brain, right? These are the interesting questions. What is human nature? Why do we behave the way that we do? Are we intrinsically mm. good or bad? Like the, these are interesting questions. And it seems to me that an education divorce from those questions is not actually preparing someone to live life as a human being. It may prepare them to be to your point, a computer programmer or to, to have now it's a college and career readiness. Right. Um, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. it's not really an education in the deep sense and in, in that it leaves, it leaves uh, kids alone when they in, inevitably confront these kinds of questions about, you know, life and death and, and morality and uh, you know, human nature, like, and there is an enormous font of wisdom in the past, whether it's, it comes from revelation in terms of, of a, a Christian, perspective or whether it comes from the ancient 
world or uh, the philosophy that proceeded from that, we have this enormous tradition and heritage in the Western world that I don't want to say answers all of these questions definitively, but it sure helps mm -hmm. us to think about them and, and cutting someone off from that heritage, in my view, cannot be called an education, even if they know how to, even if they know how to write, read a technical document. You know what I mean? Right, right. No, that, that's a that's a fantastic point, and and actually that that point I think speaks as much to pedagogy as it does to sort of moral formation. Right. That, that's one of the reasons that I'm a fan of, and we actually, um, my wife, who's the, the headmistress of our school, our homeschool. Um, we use classical conversations as sort of our core curriculum and, and, it, and it blends, it's a classical Christian curriculum. So you, you get some of the best of both worlds. Um, and, and so it, it does draw on, on the past and exposes, you know, um, students to, to great books, great literature, right. To um, great thinkers. But, it, but also, again, that particular curriculum rests on an on a explicitly Christian and biblical worldview. And I think what you get now in a lot of sort of educational sectors, especially anything that sort of builds itself as progressive, is a much more inward-focused education. So it's, how do I feel? Um, do I see myself in the curriculum? Um, you know, when I'm reading whatever text, Right. Does, does anyone there talk like me? Do they have my experiences? And and while I may understand people who think that way, I think it's a very limiting way to approach education. And, and all it does is feed the worst impulses of the culture um, across the board. And I would say right up at the top of that list in terms of the worst impulses is narcissism. Everything has to be about me. Um, and, and, and I have to be at the center of, uh, of every conversation and I, and, and people who look like me have to be, you know, proportionally representative in, in every area of society. And I, I don't think that's particularly healthy, um, cause all it does is teach kids to continue to be navel gazers. And I, I feel like that's what our, our public education churns out today and not just K through 12, but in college. And, and, and I think that is even sort of flowed upstream into some of the, you know, advanced professions or advanced degrees and, and, you know, among the, the so-called elite. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think um, having an education that sort of takes kids outside of themselves and exposes them to different manners of thinking, uh, I think is a really good idea. And again, with that, uh, answering some of those metaphysical questions come, you know, like, what is the nature of right or wrong? But then even that comes back to how do you define right, right or wrong, right? Is, is morality relative? Is it absolute? Where does it come from? Uh, if we're just sort of cosmic stardust, this is, this would probably be the Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, perspective. Um, why is killing a person wrong? Well, is it is not wrong when a, when a lion kills a zebra? So why is it wrong if if Jack kills Jim for something that he wants? Those are some of the questions. I don't even think schools are even trying to wrestle with those questions. Um, it'd be nice if they can just again before they get to who are we and where do we come from. It would be nice if they could settle on what is a woman. But I I feel like we're sort of <laughs> we're sliding backwards, so we you know we can't move to those greater questions, you know, until we can a answer the more, you know, simple questions. So. The, the obvious ones. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, in terms of the representation argument, uh, it, it is narcissistic, ultimately. Um, I think it's also very feminine in a certain sense. Um, I think little boys often... <laughs> little boys often have no problem putting themselves like, cause they imagine themselves on, on certain like internal things like valor or they, you know, read Ivanhoe. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think, mm -hmm. for example, little black boys have problems identifying when they read Ivanhoe oftentimes. Right. Um, mm -hmm. cause just, there just seems to be something about it. Maybe it makes sense. Right. Women care more about how they look for good reasons. Right. Like uh, maybe, maybe it's just something in the, the feminine spirit to always want to see yourself like, because it affirms that yes, you're beautiful. You're loved. Right. <laughs> Um, whereas I, I feel like boys left to their own devices. I don't think they really tend to think that way. Um, they no, tend to like immediately no. say, of course, I'm the knight in the story. <laughs> you know, Of course I could be. Um, right. But uh, maybe, maybe we should turn this conversation at least uh, temporarily to race because a lot of what you write about for those who aren't watching on YouTube. Right. <laughs> 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 Um, Delano is in fact black. You can see mm -hmm. on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Um, no, but, uh, you know, Moynihan, um, Senator Moynihan, I think of New York, right. Wrote this report all the way back in the early sixties mm -hmm. talking about the out of wedlock, uh, rate, um, birth rate in the black community and saying, basically, this is a crisis. This is going to cause a huge problem. Of course, now we look back and I think it was at 25% or 30% Correct. then. Yeah, 25%. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, now we, we look at it, um, the black community, I think it's like 79 or 80%. Um, but it's, you guys not, are not far from low because not, we're not, all catching up, right? Yeah, um, yeah, you look yeah. at Increasingly, if you look at Hispanic out of wedlock birth rate, um, at, you know, white out of wedlock birth rate, I think Asians are still very low on this metric, fortunately for them. But um, overall, America is... I saw a really shocking map um, that America has the highest among in the world, among mm -hmm. the highest percentage of children who are not living with both biological parents. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so one, what in you, your view has, like, has this done since Moynihan wrote that report to your community? And then what are your fears about us all? Because I feel like this is a much more universal question now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I call that sort of um, twenty five percent mark the Moynihan threshold, right? And and in 1965, that was a cause for emergency, right? One out of four black children being born to unwed parents was a cause for emergency. And, and to your point, the only sort of major ethnic group that falls below the Moynihan threshold today um, are Asians. They're at about twelve percent. Whites at about twenty eight percent. Overall, as a country, we're at 40%. So four out of 10 children in this country are born to parents who are not married. Hispanics at 52%, um, American Indians at 69%, and the Black community at 70%. So these are not numbers that bode well for anyone, right? Th these trends are going completely in the wrong direction. Um, I, I am, I'm concerned a great deal, and particularly, you know, with respect to the Black community, because, again, the number is so high. Um, I, I'll, let me say this for a quick second. Oftentimes, what people will do to deflect from um, social phenomena that are hard for them to deal with honestly is to say, oh, well, the majority of insert ethnic group are not doing insert, you know, bad thing, right? Majority of white people aren't doing drugs. The majority of black people aren't committing crimes. And, and again, those things are very well be true. 
Um, but that's not the point. The point is to look at a particular trend and see which way it's going. This is one of the few things where you can actually say, yes, the majority of black children are born to parents who are not married. So the, the, the norm is out of wedlock births in the black community. And it's not just within low income neighborhoods. Um, I, I saw data that showed that about one third of black women who have college degrees have children out of wedlock. And this was back in 2016. So, you know, to the, to the extent that this social phenomenon is real, and it is, um, this is something that has to be dealt with openly and honestly. Now, many of the, the women who are in that category today um, are in a much better position to take care of their children financially than women were, let's say, in 1965, where at that time, the median um, occupation for a Black woman, particularly in the South, was domestic. That is not the case anymore. You have women who have degrees in cybersecurity and nurses and teachers um, who are able to financially care for a child in a way that was, again, not necessarily the norm a generation ago. But um, fathers are more than just paychecks. And, and I believe that if it takes two to make, it takes two to raise. And that children need a father in the same way that children need a mother. Um, and to the extent that the role of fathers has been exclusively about provision and protection, uh, I think we've sort of done ourselves a disservice. Obviously, I'd say that that's a baseline. And going back to my upbringing, I remember my, my Sunday school teacher, um, you know, we, me and my three best friends, sort of known within our family, set as the four horsemen. And he was teaching from a, a biblical text. And he said, any man that doesn't take care of his household is worse than an infidel. And that, that was seared into my mind as a, as a child. So I, I'm, I'm all for baseline as, as a man, you are responsible for the children that you create. Um, but as a father now, I know I bring a lot more to the table than just, you know, what I'm able to provide financially. And kids um, desire presence, E-N-C-E, a lot more than presence, E-N-T-S. Um, and, and there's a certain sense of security that fathers bring. Um, children tend to interact differently, you know, with their dads. Dads are much more likely to uh, roughhouse with kids, particularly with boys. You know, there's certain things that dads do in terms of, you know, their tendency towards gross motor skill development and as opposed to moms, generally speaking, are more on the fine motor skill development. So there are all types of things that, that, that fathers bring to the table. But one of the most important ones is the understanding, particularly as kids get older, that even if their dad is not around, they have a father. And his absence creates questions in their mind. Now, it's one thing for you to say, well, son, you know, your dad served honorably in the military and, and he was killed in battle. Kids at a certain age can sort of grapple with that. Obviously, there's going to, there's going to be loss, but they understand that. It's another thing to say, well, your dad is around. He just doesn't want anything to do with you. Um, and whether you say that or not, kids eventually will sort of get the picture. And, and to paint how clearly this is not um, just an issue of race, one of the stories that's out now is that the president of the United States, who has a drug addicted son, um, also has a granddaughter that he will not allow his staff to acknowledge. So, so neither Hunter Biden nor the president, Joe Biden, will acknowledge the, 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 the granddaughter that Hunter, or the child that Hunter had 
I want to say this woman was a was a stripper. I want I believe that's correct. Um, and no matter what she gets in child support or the other side benefits that she gets from people knowing that she's a Biden, um, I think it is highly unlikely that that child will not grow up with some sort of loss, um, wanting to know why her father and her grandfather um, do not want her. And especially as she gets older and she sees the, the political ads where, where the current president says, oh, they're not your children, they're our children. These are America's children, These, right? Your kid, Delano, your kid is my kid. And she's gonna say, man, he 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 has he feels more ownership over the, the children of strangers than he does over me, and I'm his flesh and blood. Like that does something to a child. Um, so so I think there, there are reasons to talk about this particular issue that go beyond, you know, the poverty rate for for single mothers, though important. Um, dads bring a lot more to the table than just a paycheck. How how do you talk about these issues because of the numbers that? you've just listed out and we haven't even talked mm-hmm. about children of divorce. Right. 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 Um, how do you have these conversations in a place where two things are true? One, basically everyone, either they themselves have experienced this kind of loss in terms of not growing up in a married biological two parent household, or they have friends or relatives who have not. Um, so one, there's a lot of defensiveness out there, but, but two, there's, I think there's a denial of the loss at all, right? When it becomes a norm, mm-hmm. when you're talking about a neighborhood where, you know, four out of five children um, are born without their fathers in the picture. Um, at what point does it just become like an, unex- like almost like you, you don't know what you're missing because not only mm-hmm. do you know, not have anything to compare it to in your own life, None of your friends have anything to compare it to. Um, at that point, it's not just that it's not the individual tragedy of, of a, a child without a father. It's truly fatherlessness in, in an mm-hmm. entire community. And nobody even knows that they're missing a limb. The, the, I, I love the way you ended that question, because the, the phrase that came into my mind as you were talking was compensation injury. Right. You see this sometimes in sports, a person will hurt that they may be coming back from an Achilles tear. Um, And one of the things that you have to be mindful of is that while trying to compensate for bad Achilles, that you don't end up messing up your ACL. Right. Because that's what tends to happen. You you all of us, you know, most people obviously are not professional athletes. But if you sprain your ankle, you have you walk with a, a limp and you walk a little more gingerly. But. But that sprain in the ankle can lead to injuries other places. And I think what happens is, yes, it is possible for you to be compensating for so long that your limp becomes normal to you. But other people can tell that you're limping. Right. And when you have, to your point, a community where um, none of the kids are, are being raised by married biological parents, like that has serious downstream effects. Now, I will say this, and I think this is important to point out, particularly for conservatives. One of the ways that I talk about this, and I and I understand that um, this issue of non non marital birth, right, out of wedlock birth rate, is inextricably linked to race, for some of the reasons that we talked about, right, going back to Moynihan, and even particularly if you talk to folks on 
particularly progressives and black progressives, they will tie this back to the plantations of the South. They'll say that this started in slavery. Um, one, I think it's important to point out that um, in the early 20th century, like up until I want to say like 1950, black men and women were more likely to be married by 35 than their white counterparts. So the notion that the black family disintegrated in slavery um, does not line up with the facts. And in fact, one of the first things that, that uh, newly emancipated slaves did was look to piece their families back together. And, and I mean, there are newspapers and I, there's a, um, a project that I want to say is partnering with Villanova University to digitize a lot of these um, ads and papers. And it would be something to the effect of, you know, I'm Jack Johnson, my wife, Emma May. Emma May was, was sold from the Liscombe plantation in Louisiana to a different plantation in Texas. And I'm looking for her and our four children. And if you see her or find her, tell her to find me here, care of pastor, you know, Manning, in, in Louisiana, like there's hundreds, if not thousands of ads like that, um, that, that were taken out by free blacks after emancipation. So th this is not, this is, this is much more, the proximate cause, particularly in the black community is much more tied to the 1960s than it is the 1860s. That being said, I think for conservatives, one of the things that's important is to be precise in our language. And this is a principle that I hold to the, the more dangerous the weapon, the more um, care you have to take in wielding it. So I'll put it this way. When, my, when I'm playing with my kids with a super soaker, I'm you know, much freer than if I was handling a, a live weapon, right? And I say that because sometimes what conservatives will do, they'll take 70% out of wedlock birth rate and say 70% of kids in a black community are fatherless. And that's not true. Um, and it's not, it's not just, I know it's not true, not just because of the data, because a significant number of, of black children are being raised by parents who are cohabiting, because that is one thing that is present today across ethnic groups that was not present in the 1960s. So if you were, if you were being raised by a single parent, uh, an unmarried parent in the 1960s, it was 88% moms and 12% dads. I want to say it's like 30% of couples now are cohabiting. Unmarried couples with children are cohabiting. Um, so that's one thing. But the other thing is that there are fathers, and I've seen this, you know, just from places I live, where, you know, when we lived in D.C. and I did drop-offs at daycare, local, like right in my neighborhood, or at my daughter's public charter school, I'd say at least 30 to 35% of the drop-offs and pickups were, were dads. And these were overwhelmingly black men, 98%. So it's not to say that these men are not involved in the lives of their children. What I will say is it's a lot easier to be involved in the life of your child when your child is under five years old. But the United States is not Europe. So we don't have a culture of long-term monogamous partnership outside of marriage. And, and the longer you wait and the longer you remain unmarried, the more likely the relationship is to break up. And then that leads to multi-partner fertility. So a guy has three kids by two women and a woman has four kids by three men, that type of thing. 
So I, I think it's important to be precise with our language. 70% out of wedlock birth rate is different than saying 70% of kids are fatherless. Um, but, but with that, I think we need to be honest and upfront. We need to let people know that just because we're talking about, you know, family formation, marriage, out of wedlock birth rates, we're not attacking you, your life decisions, your mom, your dad, your family. Um, and we, we find a way to do this when we're talking about college, because every urban education system has their walls plastered with, you know, flags, Harvard, class of, you know, 2036 and, you know, um, Hampton University, class of 2042, that type of thing. And schools do that knowing that they're talking to kids, many of whom come from families where no one's gone to college. So, so we know how to have conversations talking about ideals in, in the context of people who have not necessarily lived those out in their lives. So, so I think a big part of it is just talking about what we think is best for society, uh, what, what is most likely to lead to human flourishing, to let people know we're not making personal judgments on, on your specific behavior. And ultimately, we promote the natural family because common sense and decades of data show that that is what is best for children. And you said this the other day on Twitter, and I want to like it 1,000 times where you said, and I'm paraphrasing, something to the effect of the great, and I've said this as well, the greatest privilege that any child has today is, is not you know, their skin color, but it's being raised in a loving, stable, low-conflict home with a married mom and dad. Um, and I agree with that with every fiber of my being. And that's across ethnic groups, across religion. Um, I, I, I think you were spot on with your assessment. Um, we'll, we'll get to some of the, I think, after effects of, of men and women essentially splitting um, and living their most of their lives separately. I mean, um, in context of when there are so many families let's say it's a smaller percentage but some percentage mm -hmm. as you say um if if the mom and dad are not married it's much more likely that the father talks to the children you know once a week once a month right um it just just that's statistically more likely so um in in the context that a lot of kids are not getting they may not have a relationship with their father especially if they're so if, if they're a girl and they don't have a relationship with their father there are probably fewer boys that don't have a relationship with their mother just by the nature of um yeah. you know of child care more more women um end up taking care of the kids when the parents split although single fathers do have like children raised by single fathers have better outcomes often than those raised by single mothers i think that's probably selection in other words, if, if the dad is dedicated mm -hmm. enough um, and the mother crazy enough um, that the <laughs> children go to the father, oftentimes mm -hmm. um, that's that's a, a sort of self-selecting group. But, um, you know, so so there are more and more kids who don't have that relationship. We have smaller families, so there are more and more kids who don't have siblings. I was thinking about this a few weeks ago. You know, the number of people who have never had a long lasting deep loving relationship with the opposite sex is probably mm. quite high. Um, mm. And if, if your first introduction to relationships with the opposite sex um, is the modern sexual market, uh, mm. I, I can see how that creates um, a certain antagonism on both sides. Um, I think in, on the female side, it, it is, 
showing up even in political polls where single women are vastly pulling away to the left, not mm-hmm. only versus men as a whole, but versus married women. Um, and then in Gen Z, we've seen quite a bit of a like a diversion in the graph where women, like girls, Gen Z girls are extremely left wing. Um, and Gen Z boys are starting to be extremely right wing. Um, and so you've, you've written some critiques. So all of that, I think I want to put is the background. So you've, mm-hmm. you've written a critique of, of the online manosphere, right? Basically, um, talking about sort of this reaction, the, the like men going their own way or, um, the kind of game blogs that focus on being able to pick up women, but not, um, not adhering to what you said when we started this conversation, right. About, about the, uh, the line from the Bible about a man who doesn't provide for his family, right. Is, is worse than an infidel. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely not adhering to that line, either foregoing having children or leaving it to women to raise their children. Um, and encouraging that because, you know, feminism and women have, you know, gotten so bad that there, there isn't, um, a, it, it's a bad, it's a bad prospect for a man to commit himself, mm-hmm. um, to a wife and children. So first, like, why don't you lay out your argument there and then, um, we can, we can discuss it. Sure. Um, you know, my argument there is that conservatives should not let what I call the masculine critique, quote unquote, go unchallenged, right? So the, the masculine critique in many respects is the mirror image of the feminine mystique, right? Many people are familiar with, you know, Betty Friedan's um, 1960s work on, on, on that particular topic. And the core of the masculine critique is that in a world where women have more economic, political, legal, and cultural power than ever before, um, traditional notions of marriage, family, children are a bad deal for men. So what a lot of these guys will say is, you know, would you encourage someone to go into a business relationship where the other person is incentivized to break the contract? And not only that, that even if they break it, they still walk away with half of your assets. Um, first, let me say, I understand that critique. And the more I listen to some of these guys, and the more I just observe what's going on in the culture, the more I say, okay, I understand how this person will get there. Um, now, personally, you know, my wife and I will be married for 11 years coming up, you know, at the end of the month. I've never once looked at the divorce laws in any of the states that we've lived in. Um, I've never looked at, you know, child support, alimony. None, I have no idea what those laws say. But I understand if you're a guy who's gone through a messy divorce, an ugly custody battle, um, I understand why you would get to the point where you say, look, this is not a good deal for men. And one of the people that I, that I named specifically in, in a recent piece I did was Jeff Younger, right? He ran for uh, Congress in Texas, again, involved in a very ugly custody battle with his ex-wife. And particularly, she, wa- she wanted to quote unquote transition their son into a girl and that that was a very public thing. Um he went through, you know, this court case in Texas. Um so when he says that men who desire a family should avoid marriage and basically procure children through adoption and surrogacy, um I, I think it's important to acknowledge like he's probably speaking from a place of very deep and personal pain. In the same way many of the feminists who are easy to caricature um, speak from a similar p- place of deep and personal pain 
when it comes to how they saw their mothers treated by their dads. And it made them say, I don't want any part of this thing. Um, and, and I guess my major contention is if the, the, the feminists on the far left say marriage is a bad deal for women, it's oppressive, children keep them tied to the household, um, and really what women should be doing, particularly in their 20s and 30s and in their, in, their, in their prime years, is focusing on their education and their career. And the red pill guys on the right, sort of, are saying marriage and family are a bad deal, right? They, they sap men of their energy and their resources. And really what men should be doing in their 20s and 30s and their prime years is focusing on their education and career. We are doomed as a society. <laughs> because you can't, the, the, the primary function of one generation is to propagate the next. And, and if um, those two opposite ends of the spectrum end up bending in towards one another to form a complete circle, and that becomes our norm, um, we're, we're in big trouble. So, you know, th that's why I think, I don't think conservatives should overlook some of these issues, right? There may be ways to, to um, address child support laws and divorce laws and so on and so on and so forth. But I always think one, part of what we should be doing, part of what I try to do is to paint a more positive and affirming vision of what marriage and family can look like, even in the midst of the cultural changes we've seen over the last 60 years. Yeah, I mean, so I'm kind of a two minds about this. On the one hand, I mean, I agree with you at the end of the day. <clears throat> Right. As I told you off air, if, if there, there is no winning the battle of the sex wars, if, if the sex wars continue, there is no future for the human race. Right. So mm -hmm. at some point. Right. Uh, there, there'll be too much fraternizing with the enemy. This this has to uh, come to a close. Right. Um, on the other hand. I do find myself in agreement with two major critiques, I think, even laying aside the specific policy about which I think there there is plenty to be done um, in terms of family mm -hmm. courts and elsewhere, um, strengthening marriage. My, my husband and I actually, um, it's kind of a useless gesture, but we 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 are what my parents called su super married. Um, well, my mother <laughs> likes to joke that my husband is my second husband, my second marriage, because a year after we got married in California, we went to Arizona. Um, they're one of three states that have so-called covenant marriage, right? So um mm. But it's it's not really legally enforceable because even if you lived in the state, all you all one per party would have to do is go to another state. I mean, it's it's not really like legally functional. But um, you know, it meant something to us that essentially that that it's it's not no fault divorce. You have to show fault right. to leave. It's right. not that there are no situations in which it's better for married people to be apart than together. But uh, you you have to show one of the traditional. Um, uh, bases of fault, which I believe are right. abandonment, addiction, adultery, and abuse. And abuse yes. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's plenty to be done on on the laws, but I, where I find myself in agreement uh, with some of these like sort of angry manosphere pickup artist type people <laughs> um, is that the culture encourages female bad behavior in a way it doesn't mm. encourage men's bad behavior, by which I mean, of course, women are no worse than men. Um, there are sort of feminine virtues and, and um, feminine negative qualities, toxic qualities, you might call them, right? Um, there are masculine good qualities and masculine bad qualities. Many of these qualities are, are the same thing depending on how they're channeled, right? Like just like 
you know, um, aggression in men could be, right. you know, channeled towards protecting the, their families and, and um, those weaker than them, or it could be into being violent and, and you know, taking stuff from the, the weak, right? Um, th- those are in some sense the same trait. I think uh, sort of caring about consensus Right. And and um, is a very important trait within a family that women often bring caring about people's feelings and consensus. But when it it goes into the boardroom, it becomes kind of this this oppressive <laughs> PC like HR regime. Right. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Where everybody has to care about the, the, the person who with the who's most easily offended uh, basically wins the game. Right. And everybody else has mm. to, to cater to them. Um you know, so many of these things are the same thing, but but it strikes me that, you know, there's no political movement and no, um, you know, cultural sort of uh, mass uh, celebration of men sleeping with their secretaries, right? Of, of men who leave their, their wives <laughs> and families to sleep with their 25-year-old subordinates. Um, there are plenty of depictions of that happening, as indeed it, it happens, in, uh, you know, not infrequently in real life. Um, but mm-hmm. but there isn't this sort of cultural sanction. If if you as a man, let's say you're a 45 year old man with a wife and 40 um, year old wife who has you know three kids of yours, and you leave her for a 25 year old, your friends mm-hmm. aren't going to endorse it. Like they may continue no. to be your friends, but nobody's going to clap you on the back and say like, "Go for it," you know, "You deserve this," right? Um, <laughs> There's not going to be a movie made about you and how you're exploring yourself by leaving your 40-year-old wife and sleeping with a 25-year-old, right? Um, and yet we have all of those things for women, right? We have the eat, pray, love entire thing. We have this, mm-hmm. this self-care therapeutic idea that, um, you know, it's it's actually uh, – it's a positive thing. It's not something in your, you know, your selfishness is not something that you should fight and um, rise above, hopefully. And maybe sometimes you're selfish anyway, but then you, you know, try not to be. There's, there's none of that. The culture full on lauds female narcissism and selfishness in a way that it doesn't laud male negative traits in the same way. And so in that environment, I can really see why maybe I, I don't, agree obviously that men shouldn't you know get married but i understand why there's this this frustration because what what's happened is that the female side of this equation has been handed a whole lot of power with mm-hmm. basically no accountability and i can see why that there's a huge backlash to that yeah i, I mean <laughs> i think sometimes we we share some of the same notes because i've said it in exactly the same way right now I think maybe the closest you can get to um, sort of the, the male counterpart, right? The, the male side of the equation in terms of, a, you know, executive leaving his family for secretaries, like Mad Men or something like that. Now, I didn't watch Mad Men. Shows, shows so it as very negative. That's what I always get, by the way, is okay. Mad Men. And I think it, it shows what it does to his life and what, um, you know, ultimately he ends up, up uh humiliating his daughter his young daughter who he mm. loves with the way that he behaves you know and you could like it, it i don't think that that's showing it i think that that's that's de- like a good art shows something that's true right um right. that happens it's a depiction of it but, but i guess you can very shallowly read that series it's like yeah he's just having a great time like sleeping with a series of younger <laughs> women but that's completely not any serious reading of the show is not that i think Okay, so so I'm I'm glad you clarified. So uh, all I know is as a sort of an outside observer is that the show was very popular, 
right? And I know that this was part of what it was depicting in that culture, you know, I, I think in the 1960s. But to your point, now you have out and out sort of celebration, right? I'm thinking of, I want to say it was the Atlantic ran a piece a couple of years ago and it started with a woman saying, you know, I destroyed my marriage and my family. And this was like, again, this was piece was hailed because apparently this person was like a well-known writer. And then you get down to it and it's just like, okay, she was somewhat unhappy. She didn't want her identity to be tied to you know, herself as a wife and, and a mom. She wanted to do yoga on Tuesday afternoon and drink Chardonnay on Thursday evening. It's like, okay, so because of that, you destroy your family. And, and, I, and I do think that that is one significant difference. And I think you, you hit the nail right on the head. I'm thinking of someone like, um, you know, Tia Maori, who, who was a child actor, her and her twin sister, who when she announced her divorce on the show, um, whatever the show is called, it's not The View, but similar type of deal. She said, well, she graduated from her relationship. So it's, it's always the language of personal therapy. It's about living your truth and all this other stuff that I, again, as an engineer, don't necessarily understand. I don't typically speak in this, this sort of ephemeral language. Um, but I do think, to your point, the culture rewards female bad behavior as a sign of empowerment. Um, and that's both in terms of standards of whether you're talking about modesty and decorum or you're talking about family formation or family destruction. Uh, and, and I don't think that that's healthy for culture. And, and I understand why guys are very hesitant to, you know, enter into a marriage. And I'm like you, I, I, I think of marriage as a covenant, you know, as a lifelong relationship where, where husband and wife become one, not as a contract where someone can get out of it as soon as they don't feel that they're at a level 100 sort of state of happiness. Um, but, but I do think that that's something that has to be addressed. But it's hard because we live in a culture that says that any boundaries on what women think, say, or do are oppressive. And, I, and my wife and I have had this conversation and, we've, and, I, and I've said, people are not against gender roles at all. Um, no one actually believes in equality because if they did, then the even sort of the uber feminist who happens to be married to a man, she would say when something goes bump in the night, honey, you stay there. You got it last time. And because we're a feminist family, I'll get up and, and check on you know what's going on downstairs. Um, so I don't think that even the feminists believe truly in, in gender equality in that sense. Um, but the way I would frame it is this. I just think the, the in terms of roles, there's much more elasticity on the side of women than on the side of men. Because again, even today, a man has to at least be a protector and a provider. And those roles are rigid and they remain in place. But when you ask someone, okay, so what does a woman have to do? What are the two or three things that she has to do to be seen as a good wife and a good mother by society? Then everybody starts to backpedal and they start to mumble and they, uh, it's not cooking and cleaning because you can pay someone for that. It's not. So, so I think there's just a lot more, um, the roles on that side are a lot more um, elastic. And I think it causes difficulty because elasticity 
and boundaries don't go together and norms don't because norms say you should go this far and no further but when people want complete elasticity they want complete freedom complete range of motion and movement um, any type of norm any type of boundary even on behavior and conduct as seen is seen as oppressive so yeah i i get why guys think that this is a bad deal um i'll give you a perfect example of this tangible example i'm not sure if this is sort of cross your timeline. It certainly has been all over mine. CNN picked up the story, by the way. There's an actress, fairly young, she's in her mid-20s, named Kiki Palmer. So she's a Black woman, been in a number of different, like, Disney-type films when she was younger. Um, she has a baby with, with a guy. I don't think he's an actor. I'm not sure who he is. but So, so she has a baby with this gentleman. They're not married. Um, video surfaced this weekend of her out... I want to say in Vegas at an, at an Usher concert and Usher was serenading her. And not only that, she, she twirled around cause she just had the baby and showed off her postpartum body. Right. And um, how do I describe the outfit? Basically looked like a, a swim one piece swimsuit with like a sheer black, you know, see-through, skirt dress thing attached right so so you can see a you can see a bottom and our the father of her child got on twitter and said i don't like this he said you're a mom and he was as you can guess uh, roundly criticized and attacked for this and then he went on to say i'm paraphrasing but something to the effect of we live in a crazy generation when the man of the family basically says he doesn't want the wife and mother of his child to be out there showing her bare cheeks to the entire world. Um, and I mean, he got so much criticism, I think he deleted his account. And when it gets to the point where you can't even say, hey, I don't think it's, I don't like the fact that my lady is out there showing you know, her cheeks to Usher and everybody else on the internet, and you get attacked for that, that just goes to show you where, this is a, this is a very different culture than, than what, you know, and very different cultural norms than what we had 60 years ago. And I'm, I don't see any appetite to recover more traditional ways of being um, outside of, of a few sort of, you know, religious communities or people who have a very, very strong sense of uh, morality, public morality. Um, the general mainstream culture no one is going to criticize that. And I think it's, it's because of what you said, like, you know, people and particularly women don't want to feel as if they are being overly critical, that they're leaving anyone out. And this is, this is the same impulse that has fueled the transgender movement, right? Where yesterday's feminists uh, who said, my identity is rooted in, in sort of patriarchal oppression, don't want to be tomorrow's oppressors to so-called transgender people. And because of that, they will allow men to come into their space and set the rules and terms and definitions of womanhood. And, they, and they'll do so and say, look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a caring and inclusive person. This is real feminism. Getting men into women's sports is real feminism. That's, that's the type of thing that they would say. Um, and it's unfortunate and it's ironic 
because those women have finally found a group of men that they're willing to submit to. Um, unfortunately, those are men who also think that they're women. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, the, the Kiki Palmer thing is a good example of the dynamic that I was talking about. It's it's not that women behave more badly than men. I don't think. I think mm-hmm. both sexes are in a competition right now to outdo each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, women's bad behavior. You've got the entire culture comes in, you know, and it's always like, I'm sure there's some background to that. Like every individual interaction like that has, you know, a, a completely personal dimension outside of what the public can see. But in, in terms right. of the, the public domain, right, there's so much support for women behaving this way. There is no incentive. Like it's hard to be a good person. It's hard to be a good woman. It's hard to be a good man. And if there's no incentive from the culture to push people in that direction, you know, so I, I, that's really where I, I see the difference. It's not so much in in obviously. I don't think my my sex is worse than than yours. I don't think that women mm-hmm. behave or have like are inherently worse. They have less virtue than men. Um, I, I just I simply think the environment for them there's so in much incentive to behave badly, and mm. there's nobody saying don't behave this way. In fact, there's 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 encouragement for it. Um, I wanted to ask you one more thing before before we start wrapping up here, um, and that's the other sure. the other side of this this critique because some of the sort of online let's call it the baposphere or whatever. Um, <laughs> there's also this you mentioned the idea that that uh, a wife and family sort of sap something from men that, mm. that that you were disagreeing with. Is there not some diversion in history between glory and family for men um in in other words is is there not a role for uh a certain kind of like martial class outside of the norms of of family and and having that influence because i mean i think i think on average i think in a especially in a good marriage like men and women influence each other positively and you can even see that sort Mm -hmm. of politically um you can see that women who are married they they come a lot closer to their husband's political opinions oftentimes. Right. And you can see that in the statistics, right? Um, men, you know, find uh, a different side of themselves when they, they feel tender towards their children. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I think this is for the most part, this is a, a good thing. Um, but, but can't you acknowledge that th- there's a need f- for society to have a certain percentage of young men who are out there for ambition and glory unblunted by, not just the burdens, but even the like transformation uh, of a family. That's that's a really interesting question. I mean, I I could certainly see that. So, for instance, um, I could see why having um, a certain percentage of men who enlist in the military be men who do not have sort of the obligations that come with having a wife and children. I, I could get that, right? Even I'm thinking of, you know, James Bond and particularly the Daniel Craig sort of legacy where they went into his backstory and, and not only was he unmarried and didn't have any kids, I won't go into any spoilers, um, but it, I think his backstory, he was also an orphan, right? So, so men who are unencumbered, quote unquote, unencumbered by family, I do think have a have a place in um, society. I just don't think that that 
that type of um I, I think that that's that's a a momentary right that, that's a time bound sort of position to be in i don't think having a society where the average man remains a bachelor until he dies is a good thing and and part of what some of the red pill guys will say is you know men in their 20s and particularly one one person says you know if you want to be a high value man in your 20s one he says get a vasectomy now i'm not going to go into all the reasons why i think that's a bad idea but i'll just he says get a vasectomy you know get off of drugs and alcohol okay cool i'm, I'm with you on that one don't get into anything that sort of saps your energy so if he's saying you know kick your your porn addiction okay i'm with you um and he said like this this will increase your value as a guy and there may be something to that but my thing is um the the gift of masculinity and i think both masculinity and femininity are gifts from god right i think we're created beings made in god's image and likeness and um part of that is that our bodies are literally fit together right and that, that's what the marriage covenant does is brings two together as one so part of the reason I, I reject you know that part of what the manosphere is pushing is that men need women and women need men right we're, we can't just live as these atomized lives where there's is constant resentment but my masculine strength and my my earning potential should be used for a particular purpose that's greater that's outside of myself because a man who thinks he's a king or has no queen and no heirs is just a rich guy in a big house and once he's gone that's the end of his line so i, I don't i don't think it's it's wise to advise men to to live like they're 20 forever um so so that that's how i would respond to that the other thing is this having uh getting married and particularly having children completely changed me as a as a person and it got me up off the couch sort of with some of these culture war things because before that i, I could have commentary and i could say this these are my opinions but once you have kids and particularly obviously you know a lot of the the, the controversies around what kids are being taught in school now you you have real skin in the game real skin in the game it's not, it's not it's not just philosophical anymore this is the um this is the difference between your 12 year old girl sort of being told no you're not just a tomboy you're a boy named tom because you like to play basketball and wear overalls things that we grew up seeing girls do like there was a name for that there was you know, you're a tomboy I did both nobody those questioned <laughs> right so so and 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 i think that when people like Admiral, Admiral Levine, uh, Richard Levine, who goes by Rachel now, says that official government policy should be for gender confused kids, so to speak, should be social, medicinal and surgical transition. I don't think that the people fighting him on the front line should be women. I think it should be dads who line up, surround the CDC, the NIH, local school board, uh, the, 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 the central office, individual schools, libraries, wherever. I think it should be men who, who 
take up their positions and are on their posts to say, you are not going to do this to me. This is the way it's going to go. Some, some trouble on your hands, right? Now, again, let me just say this. I'm not speaking on behalf of any organization, and I'm not advocating violence or, or any type of violent conduct. But part of what, what I see in the way school administrators, um, elected officials and unelected bureaucrats, the way that they're operating as it relates to kids and gender ideology, they are acting like people who have no fear of consequences, right? When I was a young guy growing up and I met a girl and she said she has seven brothers, I carried myself in a different way because I knew if I messed with her, then I would be inviting the wrath of her seven brothers. But if you're a guy, you're like, look, this, this girl doesn't even have a dad, let alone brothers, you operate in a different way. And what, what these, the people I'm talking about, they have no fear because they know in our society, going back to sort of, you know, sort of the cultural reference, um, it's not lost on me that one of the biggest acts in, in hip hop today is a woman named Meg Thee Stallion. So she's literally named after um, a, a, a horse that's been uncut and, and I would argue that in today's culture, the women are stallions and the men are geldings. And that's why so many women are on the front lines of all cultural war battles, because the, the guys have been snipped. And they have grown up in a culture that for 60 years has told them their impulses. The few guys left will say, you know what? I don't think being half naked all the time is good for you or society. I don't think that that shows that you have respect for yourself, your family, your fellow man, or your community. Those guys have been beaten into submission. And what you get are the feminist allies that say, yo, yes, queen, oh, slay girlfriend and all that other stuff. So, the, so guys are weak. And, and, I, and I don't think um, selling guys additional weakness in the form of, um, in the form of, well, you shouldn't get married and have a family because there's a chance that it may fail is a, is a good deal for men. Now, mind you, these same men would not tell other guys not to start a business for fear that a business may fail, and many of them do, but they'll tell them don't get married and have kids because it may not work out for you. And, I, and it just, there's just something about that that I can't wrap my mind around because marriage and family, and, I, and I'll, I'll just speak for myself, are not only my highest vocations, but they also gave me something both to live and die for. And when my wife had, you know, her last birthday and, I'm, you know, we were talking, the kids were in bed. And I said, look, I, I hope you know that I would literally lay my life on the line for you. That's, that's not talk. If, if, if something, if a bullet was speeding towards you, I would step in front of it and take it for you. And you don't get that with conscious co-parenting. You don't get that with uh, baby mama drama. You don't get that with um, a, a, a surrogate sperm donor relationship. That type of commitment only comes through marriage. Um, and, and that's why I think we can't allow, and I don't, I don't want to say lesser, but lesser relationship forms to, um, I, I don't think we should look at those. I don't think conscious, the type of conscious co-parenting that sort of people like Van Jones and other people advocate are a good substitute uh, for marriage because I've never seen for better 
or for worse, till death do us part uh, in any child support decree that I've ever heard of. So uh, I, I think there's a reason to, to um, keep what we've had and what sustained us for so long. Uh, I don't think we should abandon that just because we're going through a difficult season right now. On that note, uh, Delano Squires, thank you so much for joining. High Noon, um, where can people find more of your work? Well, I do most of my most of my attempts to stay out of trouble are on Twitter. Again, not very successful, but um, they can follow me at Delano Squires, uh, D E L A N O S Q U I R E S, all one string, on Twitter and on Instagram. Thanks very much. And thanks to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is the independent a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.